make the past something positive in our current identity, to avoid eulogising what went before or seeing it as all bad? Well, my last guest today is brave enough to tackle this vital question right now too, when lots of vexed questions abound, uh, especially around colonisation. So many of us just tune out, I think. Philippa O'Brien is a West Australian art historian who decided to make an asset of looking at it full in the face when she was asked to write about 19th century settlement of what later became our existing Perth suburbs. Now, out of that commission from a not-for-profit arts agency called the Ellenbrook Cultural Foundation, she's produced something remarkable. The visual history of the people arriving to set up the Swan River Colony in the 1820s and those who already lived there, various Aboriginal tribespeople. No Stone Without a Name is the result, a comprehensive visual history of possession and dispossession. It's a very heavy, beautiful book sitting in front of me now, which clearly took over Philippa's life. She's joining us from our East Perth studios. Welcome, Philippa. Hello, Geraldine. Did it take over your life? It certainly did for about 10 years. I can feel it. (laughs) (laughs) What what you have chosen to do is look at how we depicted this drama visually, not how we wrote about it, though there is some of that in your book, but above all, it's what we can see. Now, why did that become such an important emphasis for you? Uh, Well, first of all, I'm a, a visual artist and taught art history and so on. So that whole visual uh, side of things is really where I come from. But really what it, the, the essence of this book is that it's a big collection of the colonial art of a particular place. And when you bring that together, we, we're, many of the things in this book are familiar to, to some people and people in different places, but a lot of it people will never have seen before. But when you put it all together, it starts to have um, a presence and a force that is different from looking at individual works and it becomes quite an immersive sort of experience. I mean, there's over 500 pictures in this book and it's a, it's a lot of stuff. You get It is an immersive experience. And you came to see that the history is the heart and soul of this task, but that very few people understood it and very few even knew of the history. Now, how can we see, as opposed to read, how can we see the fullness of the events of that 19th century then? Well, I think the the visual history is actually one that's really has a powerful effect of its own. Uh, Pictures are accessible. People don't, it's not hard work. You don't have to read five pages. You just simply look at it. And a, and a picture itself, once you start to look, is a little secret, silent world. If you start to learn to, to look at pictures um, properly, slowly, and, I mean, as this book goes on, I guess you people become more, I, I hope, people become more immersed in that visual information. Yes, well, I think you do, and well, I felt encouraged to do just that. Most of the painting and drawing, as you say, were part of the established visual traditions from the European Enlightenment. But if you learn to look more deeply, more carefully, you can discern a wider story. Now, what is that in your words? The interesting thing about a great deal of this art is that it's actually that they are prints. Most of the, I mean, WA was a small, little, not very rich colony. Um, and most of the the drawings and paintings that came out of it, almost all of it was done by amateur artists. And those amateur little drawings or, or homemade little paintings were sent off to printmakers basically in London. 
But in Europe at that time, these huge print workshops existed. And, and of course, people, it's the age of the beginning of tourism when all those wonderful books where artists were going around the world recording landscapes all over the place. So it was a great tradition that was flourishing already. And these printmakers took those little amateur drawings and they turned them into their format of, of prints, which was, first of all, through a European visual lens. So everything ends up looking like Europe. Mm. But what happened to those prints is that that little print was taken by one person where it was a redrawn to be suitable for printmaking. Then the print was cut by a second person and then it was hand-coloured by a third. And all of these different people, none of whom had ever seen the Australian <laughs> landscape, made these new versions. Well, uh, you, you know... There are real paradoxes, as you point out. Even though it was entirely new to them, the British artists drew the surprising vegetation they found, this extraordinary booty in WA especially, exquisitely, but not the people whom they met, or very rarely were they simply not interested enough in the people who were there when they arrived. I think people was, was a difficult subject, but what everybody was totally absorbed by was land. That's why everyone came. People came to WA because they were losing their, their spot in that very class-based English society. Um, the soldiers and sailors were all on half pay after the uh, Napoleonic Wars. The Corn Laws were spreading poverty widely. So both the upper class and the working class, the the, the, the labourers that came, were all came for that basic uh, reason that they could not survive in England. Um, and they came here for land. And so landscape is what actually mm. preoccupies everybody totally. And they didn't want to see that there was anybody there. Well, I, I think it's also slightly contentious. I think it actually re reveals, first of all, in WA, a, um, a, a modesty, a sense of not wanting to put your head up. Uh, but secondly, that in some pictures there are some uh, Aboriginal figures, for instance, and they are, when we look at it from my point of view, this immersive view, they become extremely political. And so people in a landscape have some sort of relationship to ownership. Well, you say they, they're a shadow presence. Yes. Uh, and I think you've persuaded me. <laughs> I've started <laughs> to look for them. There are some surprising exceptions, though. Very moving. Tell us the story about the young artist William Westall, please, and that amazing portrait he did of that young man, that young Ningana, I think it was, warrior. Um, well, Westall is the artist who got the job of uh, being the artist with the Matthew Flinders expedition. And he was the youngest person in the whole place. He was, I think, 19 when he came. And uh, he was a student at the Royal Academy, but a very early young student. And he came in the company of very senior people, for instance, the very famous, the most famous botanical artist of the day, Ferdinand Bauer, and Robert Brown, a important scientist, and, of course, Matthew Flinders himself. Uh, but he, um, his job was to record everything. It was a great tradition at that time, especially in the Army and the Navy, but they, that artists were important because surveying was not very accurate and pictures were often used to establish the reality of places. Um, anyway, Westall comes and his job is to paint what he sees and he sees a group of, part, a group of, of um, Minang men talking to um, Matthew Flinders and co. And he draws a fairly um, abrasive, not very flattering, quick picture of the group of young men. 
um, showing them not as extremely graceful or so on, but a typical European view of Indigenous people. But then he actually turns and stops and he speaks to one of them, obviously, separately, and he does this beautiful drawing um, a la his drawing class at the Royal Academy, a classical figure. So the kangaroo skin cape around the young man's shoulders slips off around his shoulders like a classical piece of drapery. And after a while, he shows the drawing to the young man and he is impressed to the point where he drops the rest of the of his um, kangaroo skin cape so that the whole figure can be drawn. It's a beautiful drawing, so much in contrast to the rather offensive, typical colonial sort of image of the of the previous one. Mm. Yeah, that's right, which he would have done probably half an hour before. And you can see the young Westall um, suddenly seeing someone like himself. Mm, Amazing. And, I mean, there are some other examples um, much later. The story of James Walsh, who was a convict, because initially, of course, the plan for the West Australian uh, settlement was no convicts, but they had to change that and they were almost about to go under in 1850. And uh, James Walsh was a ticket of leave man um, who wrote, had a lot of time in solitary confinement, and he looked at the Aboriginal people and saw outsiders, you suggest, like himself, and actually did... Well, charming's the word, but certainly very much more interesting evocations of them than his forebears had done. Absolutely, Walsh was a. Um, he always reminds me of, of of William Blake. Actually, he's I think a self-trained young person, no money to go to the Royal Academy, so he would have learnt his drawing skills, which were he had good classical drawing skills. We know because of what he left on the walls of his cell in Fremantle Prison. But um, he came here as a convict. And um, during that time, he he actually was once after being released, he was convicted again. He had TB. He he was sick, and he found himself towards the end of his life actually living as a sort of outcast. I mean, colonial slumbery came along with the with the whole colonial enterprise. These incredibly um, snobbish, pretentious, um, pseudo middle class little settlers. Um, were pretended that convicts didn't even exist. They were they were absolutely almost obliterated from the historical um, record at the time. But James Walsh is there with his pen and paper and his great skills. But he doesn't do classical drawings. They're very intimate, like a diary. They're touching. They're little things. They're and they're he's obviously living with them because you can see from the perspective that he's sitting on the ground at the same time. So the the fishermen in the river. Uh, against the Mount Eliza, towering figures like almost like he reminds me of Goya, and the the wonderful Goya figures of where where they tower in the landscape. And look, there's some there's some other examples like the beautiful scenes on the Swan, positively Arcadian, with white flooded gum tree trunks, and then you know marking the bends in the river, absolutely gorgeous, with Noongar people in canoes and Noongar women wearing European clothes. Except that we know the Noongar people did not use canoes. So I mean, that was somebody's imagination about creating a scene that they they thought should be there by the sound of it. Well, uh, no, I think that's uh, th- those are the drawings done by the one of the members of the crew of the, the 1827 expedition when Stirling was exploring the Swan and his the, the surgeon Claus, um, Frederick Claus, was a part of the trip. Now, he had they had an artist official on that expedition, but Claus was an amateur artist and he he had a real eye for those very poetic moments. And, of course, the river was absolutely beautiful. And he did that little painting. He would have done a first little watercolour sketch. 
um, and then he would have taken it away and done his cleaned up version, his final version at home, or may have been on the site even, but sometime soon he would have done that. But of course, he'd been in Sydney and he'd seen the Sydney uh, Aboriginal population with lots of canoes and they wore uh, European clothes by that. By by the 1820s, women in Sydney, Indigenous women are wearing European clothes. Mm. But they certainly weren't in WA in 1827. Mm. And so it's really a piece of colonial... um, well, colonialism, it's a real a, a document of colonialism in a sense that it's that he could just use that imagery, take it and turn it into what was in fact a nostalgic little image for himself or one of those things he would flog in, in Europe as an interesting sort of sociological thing to, to show to other people. Now, look, we, we could, there are lots of stories, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to very much pick and choose. I must ask you about Chapter 17, you title Wanjamup, The Shameful History of Rotnest. Now, a lot of people will know of Rotnest Island, a great holiday um, holiday focus in, in West Australian life. Tell us why it's a shameful history, I mean, and what we can see of that. Well, it, it is a, a, an absolute disgrace. Um, the, the fact that the um, colonial administration behaved in that way is all you need to know to understand what colonialism was all about. I mean, it was first described as this little island paradise by one of the early Dutch explorers, but was soon, very soon after the arrival of the settlement, it turned into a prison and it was the cruelest place. People, were, Aboriginal men were brought from all over the state. So they could have come from the Kimberley, they could have come from anywhere. They were essentially the leaders um, of their people and they were essentially defending their people. And those people, along with other people who might have been imprisoned for what was some sort of um, uh, something to do with Indigenous law, where they should have not have been tried in a Western sense anyway, or alternatively, it would be because they stole a sheep because they could no longer get a kangaroo. And their sense of reciprocity, of course, was not shared by the whites at all. Now, we can't see any of this. So this has been handed to us. I mean, that's the point. There's no depiction of this, is there, visually? Uh, There's no pictures. Colonial art is wonderfully selective. Uh, Things like this, there are no pictures of. There were all sorts of people going to Rotnest, but they painted the beach, but they didn't put any figures into this one. Look, uh, you do believe that we can dig into this, uh, clearing our way through habitual patterns of seeing, thinking and feeling, as you say, often very frightening, but it's the royal road leading to treasure. (laughs) That's your final remark. Uh, How has that been the case for you and might Uh, it be for us? Well, I think it's really our only option. Um, We can't go on not thinking about these things. Um, Colonialism's chief weapon is actually history itself. It wipes out the old realities and it puts a new reality onto the land. It imposes it on the land. Art is a wonderful tool for normalising a lot of terrible things. Um, You can sometimes understand the violence that's that's, uh, a part of one of these pictures, but art sort of normalises that brutality. Um, If you take these things apart, you can sort of put together a story for yourself. But the, the thing I think that's really important is for us to see ourselves, to, to somehow or other find a place for ourselves to identify our own position. And every single one of us can, in fact, do that. 
one of the things I, that I came to, to feel about it is that colonialism is like a Greek tragedy. It's that terrible act, that, that crime that is committed and that it is recirculated over the generations. And in Greek tragedy, it's virtually impossible to annihilate that crime. It just goes on and on and on with its repetition through every generation. And if we want to stop that, we have to somehow or other intervene. And I think really the intervention that's possible now is for all of us to think about what our own place is. And we can all do that. I am a descendant of colonisers. And to say that somehow or other gives it a reality. Or we may have come, people, lots of people have come from other parts of the world where the colonisation has been a part of their history. Or the other aspect of it, of course, is to clearly identify yourself as Indigenous. Now, Indigenous is a really amazing word. It, the word Indigenous only has meaning in the context of colonialism. If you haven't been colonised, you don't have Indigenous people. They're just people. But if you have Indigenous people, it means we're talking about colonialism. And I think if you simply start to look at these words and speak to yourself even, if not to others, about your own place... I think it begins that path of breaking that terrible chain of events. Well, that is a question absorbing a lot of us at the moment. Look, Philippa, congratulations on something, producing something after 10 years when your life was taken over. (laughs) (laughs) I do appreciate all the effort that you've put in. I certainly learned a lot. Thanks very much, Geraldine. Philippa O'Brien. She's the author of No Stone Without a Name, a collection of colonial art from WA published by the Ellenbrook Cultural Foundation. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.